Welcome to the Radical Reformers podcast. I'm Andrew Laird. This podcast is by public service leaders for current and future public service leaders. If you would like to hear what the ministers and politicians are thinking, then there are numerous other podcasts where you can tune in to find out what their latest thoughts are. This podcast is about the inspirational people designing and leading frontline public services. This is about the people who do the real work. On the podcast, you'll hear from leaders from councils, from within the NHS and other public services, and also those involved in policy development. I particularly try and find people who have interesting stories to tell and have achieved really difficult things in challenging circumstances and who have learned lessons along the way and who are keen to share those lessons with others. Because as I think as we all know, public service leaders are not prone to shout about their achievements, but it is really important, especially now with so much pressure on public services, that those leaders do share the lessons that they have learned about what works and what indeed does not work. So I hope you enjoy it and don't forget to subscribe on the website or follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter to make sure you don't miss any future episodes. And indeed, you might want to catch up on some of the previous episodes. This conversation is with Alison Hopkins. Alison is the chief executive of Accelerate, which is a community interest company which provides lymphedema and wound care services in the north of London. Now, this is obviously a very specialist service, but it is a fantastic case study on prevention. There's a lot of talk in health and care about shifting the focus to prevention rather than treatment. And how Alison describes how they provide services, how they have a very clear focus on better outcomes for their service users and how that generates savings for the system. It's uh, just a conversation that I feel there's a huge amount to, to be learned. Alison's very honest about what it's like leading a small organisation, particularly through the challenges of the past two years and the COVID pandemic, but also an organisation trying to find its place in the new NHS ICS environment. During the conversation, we talk a lot about balance, the importance of a leader balancing the projection of confidence with being secure enough to demonstrate vulnerability as well. And we also talk about the balance between the pressures of running a business and also being driven by a mission. So lots to look forward to. And I really enjoyed this conversation and I'm sure you will too. Alison, a very warm welcome to the Radical Reformers podcast. I wonder if you could start just by saying a little bit about who you are. I'm Alison Hopkins. I'm Chief Exec of Accelerate Community Interest Company. And I am a nurse and Accelerate spun out of Tal Hamlet's Primary Care Trust back in 2011. So we've just celebrated our 10th anniversary, oh, which is very, very exciting, simply because I don't think at that stage many people thought we'd survive. <laughs> <laughs> so we've gone from strength to strength and still a lot to do, a lot that we want to accomplish. So um and I suppose for me, for my personal passion, so I was a community nurse, then went into specialist nursing, into tissue viability. My main passion in that area is leg ulceration and the terrible use of compression therapy as a critical 
intervention, simple but massively important that people don't necessarily um, really use well uh, yeah. to create impact. Um, so that's a personal thing of mine. So it's mainly that group of marginalised patients and the fundamental belief, and we have this throughout Accelerate, is what goes on in the UK and the world um, is not necessary. It's quite simple. Okay. Prevention is better than cure, as we know. And um, whilst you can't stop some wounds happening, you can certainly stop them declining into a terrible, destructive, chronic wound state that ruins people's lives. Thank you. So you've told us a bit about your professional background, professional passions, but as well as being a nurse and as well as having that expertise, you're also a social entrepreneur. So when did when did that spark ignite within you oh goodness it's such a, a weird thing I don't know if I put that label on me I sort of still have a label as a nurse and I love and I'm proud of that label so proud of it um and so I think fundamentally if you're a good nurse you're creative yeah. and um you you're there to find solutions and you're not there just to do a task. You're using the skill set that you have, the people around you to create change. So um, for me, Accelerate was simply a means to doing more than what we were doing. Mm -hmm. And so back in 2010, with the right to request, we knew that that things were changing. And that as a service in, in the PCT, which was a very, very creative primary care trust, and it was a tragedy, to be honest, that so much of that got lost. When we had a chance to do the right to request, we knew that if we moved as a community service into an acute trust, they wouldn't understand what we had or the opportunity we had. I yes. knew that they would see us as like, wow, look at that large service. That can be cold. You know, yeah. I actually knew that and I know that would have happened. We had some wound care beds at the time in Mile End Hospital that were unique in the UK, absolutely unique. We put forward a case for them to be developed um, with the acute trust, but we just lost them. They just went, ah, computer says no. And, um, and so we lost them. So um, we knew that the chances of losing the service and people not realising that there was a massive waiting list for our service from across London. So there was a business opportunity and the need was there. There was need beyond North East London and so on. So it should have been something that acute trust would understand, mm -hmm. but I knew they wouldn't. And so we took the leap. But it wasn't just me. Whilst I led that, the only reason I could lead that was because the other six people in the team completely were committed to it, completely and utterly, yeah. of yeah. the risk that they were taking by stepping out. Yeah. And the, the, I suppose knowing that we could continue with our terms and conditions as to be in to accelerate was very helpful at that time. And so that's what that's what we did. But it was very much a team effort yeah you mentioned a, a couple of things i'll just explain for listeners right to request was a program that was around the time that primary care trusts were separating commissioner and provider services and right to request was a department of health 
um, program that allowed a service like yours and many others to spin out into independent mutuals and social enterprises. And it was a very exciting time for for public services. And I think like yours, it was the saviour of a lot of more specialist, smaller services. Um, and uh, it, it was certainly very positive. And we'll come back to uh, just the threat to those types of organisations that the current reform is bringing. But just to stay on Accelerate and what it does and a bit more about it for a second. Could you just say just how large it is in terms of numbers of employees now and how you've kind of grown over the years? Um, People often speak in terms of turnover, which I always think is interesting. But I think for us, it's more the reach that I'm more bothered about. Yeah, so, no, I didn't. I very yeah. specifically didn't ask about yeah, yeah, turnover because yeah, I'm, I'm more interested you know, in the people that. Absolutely. So we had just started with a team of seven. We've now got, I think, I think 42. Wow. Um, and so we think we'll be probably close to 50 by the end of this year. Uh, we started with the contract in Tower Hamlets. As you spin out, that's the contract yeah. we had, uh, which wasn't enough to keep us um, alive. And so we swiftly um, uh, made the most of our opportunities within uh, northeast London and capitalised on the patients coming through that were not, to be honest, well managed uh, before uh, financially, you know, the package around them. So we increased our um complex wound and lymphedema care and our contracts have increased across northeast london so we we are an unusual small provider in that we have contracts with each ccg in our ics uh, integrated care system as it will be called but uh, the other areas that's the clinical delivery the other areas that we've increased on is our we have an accelerate academy and a lot of that is online now, as well as um, we take it lock, stock and barrel to providers um, as well. And that very much focuses on our USP, which is lower limb management and lymphedema. We recognise the need for advanced skills in compression if this is go- if the situation is going to change. We leave the sort of ordinary wound care stuff to others. Um, we very much focus on where we can bring added value. And so that's the academy. We do research as well. That's been a growth area for us um, over the last few years. Um, and that's um, internally managed and we work and collaborate with others. And the other area that's ripe for growth would be our dressing optimization scheme. We've developed our own platform um, for delivery of that. Um, and that's um, surprisingly amazing at delivering savings back to the providers and the CCGs. Yeah. So I, when, you say, I, when you say platform, what do you mean? Uh, it's a digital, it's okay. an online uh, platform for off-prescription provision of dressings. Okay. So there's some industry-led um, products that help with that. And so it's similar to that. But the added value is that, one, we're agnostic uh, to dressings. And so we're not forcing anyone to have particular dressings. That's an important one uh, from a and the independence uh, of thought. And so you're not sort of 
taking on products that you have to just because you're using that system. So that's one thing. But um, for me, the fundamental thing would be the clinical insights that we deliver to help nudge the system forward and provide a wraparound budgetary management through this system plus through prescription with GP um, practices to make sure that the whole system sees reduction in spend, the whole system, not just, oh, we're doing all right, look at what we're doing on our platform, but not taking account of the waste anywhere else. So that's a really critical area because everyone will say, whilst wound care in particular is fundamental to community nursing, um, people think that they haven't got the resources to change the current system. And so our view is, ah, you do, but it needs some agreement about how you reduce waste and put that money, that savings, and it is cash savings, into a different system, certainly around workforce or training or equipment. So those, so our mission is very simple. It's about improving people's lives, not just the patient's lives, the workforce lives, because for all of the listeners who are involved in community nursing, they'd know that 50% of activities related to wound care or infection and, and what we call wet legs, it's a terrible description, but 50% of the activity over a week, that's massive. And, and there is a different way of doing it. If people would just open up their eyes a little yes. to see how it could be done differently, and if it isn't done differently, we should see it as harm, as patient harm. And yes. that's a critical area for us. So every development of our business comes, it pivots on this mission. Yes. So that's why we don't take on pressure ulcers. Now, someone else can do that. That's fine. You know, yeah. someone else can do the training around pressure ulcers because there's some good stuff out there. That's not our mission. Our mission is around uh, lower legs and lymphedema. And I think what, what listeners will be picking up here is that whilst Accelerate is is quite a specialist service, our conversation is fundamental in terms of the drive to move from treatment to prevention. And I think this is a wonderful case study for a particular service that actually there are huge lessons which which can be learned elsewhere also. Um, I wonder if I could ask just how your service fits with other actors in in health and social care because it sounds like you need to be involved in a wide range of networks and have partnerships with a, with a wide range of organizations absolutely um we're a small specialist service and can't do it alone yeah. um we are very um collaborative we certainly try to be i'm sure we could be better at that um but Collaboration to deliver local services is just absolutely essential. So we work with other big um, provider, community providers. Uh, We work very, very closely with district nurses in particular, with Mm. primary care, with practice nurses and with tissue viability teams. So um, we would see us as part of the escalation of non-healing or yes. um or direct delivery we have a range of contracts sometimes we're delivering leg ulcer clinics and sometimes we're just supporting others or we just take the extreme cases and the interesting thing about the extreme cases um 
we could see through our research program. So when you take on, say, I don't know, you're you're looking at a new dressing or um, a wound spray or something odd like that, um, you would have to put them. So you have a new referral for someone that's been deemed complex and non-healing. You have to see them for a good four weeks to make sure that they're not healing with standard care. And we have so many people that we cannot move forward into the research simply because they heal with good standard care, uh, advanced skills in compression or whatever it is. And that tells the story about the fact that someone may have had their leg ulcer for 18 months, three years, five years, and yet just with a regular um, attention to detail, um, they then cannot be moved into a research program because they're not non-healing anymore. Mm. So we have that across the UK. In Tower Hamlets, because we've been there, and that's where I started a leg ulcer clinics at the end of the, the 80s, believe it or not. Um, and I know, Andrew, you're going, how I look so young. But, <laughs> yeah, uh, I was thinking um, that, yeah. <laughs> um, but, um, and because of the history of a focused approach to wound healing over these last decades, it reduces cost. We have a very low wound prevalence. um, And if we publish it, I honestly know that people don't believe it. They think, oh, they've missed a load of patients there. How can you have that small number of people with wounds or that small number in particular with leg ulcers. Now, Tower Hamlets is a younger population as well, so you have to take that into account. But our numbers of people coming through are way less than others. And that's simply because we have a very comprehensive lymphedema service. So if you have a lower lymphedema service or a lymphedema all site, um, the numbers uh, that are in hosiery today in Tower Hamlets would be way more than in a standard borough. And because of that, they then don't develop leg ulcers in the same way as other boroughs would. So the flow, you're re- you, it's all, you know, call it anticipatory care, you know, prevention or whatever. But it's all about um, stopping the pipeline to to chronicity. And it really isn't rocket science. This is the frustrating thing about this is it saves money. And the way that we as a uh, as an organization talk about that is that in the dressing spend. So if you've got um, inappropriate uh, standard of care being given or you've got um, uh, terrible situations with people with wet legs and lymphedema, you will see all of this in the dressing cost. Yeah. And so by analysing the dressing cost, it's like a proxy indicator of many things. Yes. And so by reducing that cost by through other activities, you can see a reduction in the cost. And so um, there's wastage generally in prescribing anyway. So you can immediately switch that off. But that doesn't necessarily deliver long term gains mm. beyond that year. You, you know, you've you've cut out some waste. But the way you reduce it further um, and we look at the spend of dressings per resident as like a benchmark, the way to really get it uh, low is by um, proactive use of resources so that you stop chronicity. So there's um, now there's a national wound care strategy, which is great. 
um, and um, uh, and some of the information that you get out from that is they think possibly that um, with leg ulcers we're healing about 45% in a 12 month period. So you just add that up. So if you have 100 people, 50 move on into year two and that, you know, another. And so this is where the cost is, is in the non-healing. And so if you heal people up fast, especially in leg ulcers, because that's the most costly group in healthcare, you can make a phenomenal difference. So in Tower Hamlets, we took on a contract variation so we could deliver the leg ulcer clinics. Mm-hmm. And so we deliver them and we see 95% healing in six months. Yeah. So you, you've stopped them. You've stopped them tracking. I think that's really fascinating, actually, that the way how you're able to focus on prevention. Do you think being a community interest company, being a a more independent organization has allowed you to make your own decisions about focusing on prevention? Definitely. I mean, when something just makes sense, you're able to just go for it. Yeah. So um, for us, like in the dressing scheme, we have control over that in Tahamnitz and we just go, right, what products would make a difference, say, to our workforce? Mm. What products would um, make um, just switching things around um, would reduce cost or, or whatever? Yeah. So we're it's fully in contro- control of that. And through the pandemic, uh, right at the beginning, we were able to just go, right, OK, folks, let's order the hosiery rather than it going through GPs. Because if you can't get someone into hosiery and they're in bandages and you they need something specific and not just the basic standard off the shelf, then people still need care. And so the way you cut that out is by early use of different yes. products, especially yeah. garments. And so we were able to just say, we're suggesting we do this on behalf of various ccgs you know what about it folks and Mm. they go oh thank you very much and so we are able to move much more swiftly but internally as well if someone goes wow that's really frustrating whatever that is and you go well why are we doing that then and Mm -hmm. then it changes it's about just being able to make decisions for yourself yeah really that's a really good explanation of that and i think a lot of your colleagues in other social enterprises and mutuals would say very similar things. Um, I'd like to talk about the new integrated care system now. So you're a relatively small organisation. You were saying 45 to 50 staff. What's it been like trying to find your place in the new ICS? I think it's really, really hard. Mm. (laughs) I mean, you try and have the conversations you need to have, but you know that there's loads and loads and loads of other conversations that you're not part of, to yeah. be honest. And you sort of understand that we're small. You've got big providers um, and so on. But we do flow through um, the ICS and we do bring something specific to mm. the ICS landscape. And trying to get your sort of voice heard is is hard. I know that they are setting up the provider alliance or collaboration. I I just know those things are happening. Have we had anything formally? Absolutely not. So I'm always like digging around and hello, you know, Um, (laughs) and and it's hard because you know that you're vulnerable 
And yeah. to be honest, no one else understands, however like sympathetic they are, they absolutely have no understanding of your vulnerability. Yeah. Absolutely zilch. So you have to somehow make that known without making yourself feel even more vulnerable. <laughs> um, well, that's a really good point. I want to just explore that in a bit more detail, actually, because you, I know, are a very authentic leader. But when you're dealing with bigger players in, in a system, there's a risk at projecting too much vulnerability and you need to project confidence and, and project reassurance. But, yeah, it, it you also need people to understand where you are as an organization. So I imagine that's quite a tightrope to walk. Oh, you hit the nail on the head. I mean, I think, you know, I would say to key people, I do, I'm not playing a game here. Just tell me the truth, you know. But I know that actually that's not how the game works, <laughs> you know. And it's, I find it's that. It's why we don't like the game to work, but it certainly isn't how it works. It's not how it works. Yeah. And so, to be honest, half the time, I don't know if I'm having a honest conversation or not. Yeah. And um, and I I will be transparent about everything. But you're absolutely right. I can't be. And so I think um, we are in you are walking a tightrope and you have to go in with oomph that you might not be feeling. That is for sure. And and just feeling very wary of who's in the room or around the table or who's not there at all, but they're managing things externally, you know. And I think the biggest issue for me as a small provider is one, having the the nerve to keep yourself out there, just keep putting yourself out there, yeah. um, which for me almost takes away from the day job of what the mission is, which is yeah. just I really, I struggle with that, to be honest. Yeah. Um, and and then just trying to uh, know who to talk to, to be honest, because the decent people in the system, and there are decent people in the system, they may not be making the decisions, despite however senior they are, actually, you know, because um, wheels turn. And um, and we are small. Yeah, I think you've expressed it very clearly there that you what you really want to focus on is the delivery of great services. But often you're pulled into this more corporate battle about survival and place and things. So where where do you get your support from? Do you have a, a board that you can draw on? Do you have a network of, of yeah. like, like minded colleagues? Definitely. So the first uh, port of call for me is uh, my senior team. Mm -hmm. They are really good and and we have each other's backs, you know, um, that they're really good. Um, so that's the first group. But of course, you know, as a chief exec, you still have to, you know, you know how it is. Well, that, that's a tightrope as yeah. well, isn't it? Because yeah. You, yeah. you have to project, you know, I'm, I'm a managing director of an organisation as well. And whilst I yeah. want to get input from the senior team, I can't be my full vulnerable self or else no, they, you, they'd you start can't. to wonder what I was doing. No, exactly. On a bad day, you better not share it. Um, <laughs> and um, so I think uh, for me, they help me with just knowing the strategy. 
you know, how how to look at it from different lenses, through different yeah. lenses. So that's really important. And and they are very personally supportive, as I am of them. And I think that's just really important. And we are an authentic group of leaders, to be honest. Uh, I really do believe that. And then the board are very good, actually. Yeah, it was quite interesting. I was at um, one of the support networks I have is being part of um, uh, a network of social and health uh, charities and social enterprises. And that's a really good group of people, learnt a lot from them. And they have sort of lots of different webinars and things. That's Social Club. Um, which oh, yeah, this is, yeah. This so is Craig, 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 yeah. Craig Darren Phillips. Yeah, yeah. no, I, yeah. I know Craig well. Yeah, and great. that's, I often draw on that and contact people through that to pick their brains on different things. So that's really helpful. But it's also helpful because you you listen and learn. You listen and learn to uh, things in social care, which is not my bag, or charities or education or something. But there's something that you can go, ah, ah, okay, that's interesting. That's useful. And you put it into your pot. Um, But they had a webinar recently on the battle on the boards or something it was called, (laughs) you know, and and I was like, I don't have that. I don't have that, that and that. And I have a very good chair who is very supportive, very democratic, um, but very, very focused on quality and governance. So she can be very picky on things, but also very supportive. And she has been doing that for the last um, few years and she's very good. This is clearly somebody who shares your vision for the service. Definitely. So I think the most important thing is to have an eclectic group of people that share your values. Um, They may have a very slightly different way of viewing the world. And as long as you can all talk about that with respect, then you can learn. And a couple of years ago, or might have been a year and a half ago, we we recruited um, to our board and we specifically wanted to recruit uh, a group of people who would bring some business clarity, some research, uh, the sort of social entrepreneurial, not that we didn't have that before, but yeah. we specifically really pushed for recruitment. And I couldn't believe how many people we got responding to our advert. I mean, so many. And the normal suspects were surprised when they didn't get through to even being interviewed. You know, it was um, a fascinating little exercise. And so we were able to take some really good people onto the board. And they are a very good group of people that bring skills and expertise. I often meet with them uh, certainly every two months individually to pick their brains on different aspects, keep them appraised as staff so that the three monthly meetings aren't a surprise or just a tick box. Um, uh, Helen, my chair, and I would meet um, every few weeks. So yeah. it's, it's very no, it's great, actually. And I think one of the one of the great benefits of delivering this type of service or any type of health and care service outside of formal public sector structures is that the idea of governance is completely different. So within the public sector, it's quite focused on monitoring and checking, whereas in a social enterprise, your board can add a much wider 
range Definitely. of value. Um, you know, you can get those experts in who can advise you, who can improve the service. It's not just about monitoring and checking that you're not that you're not doing anything wrong, essentially. Oh, definitely. I I mean, I think my understanding of how a board needs to work has grown, obviously, over the last number of years. I had a clue when we started. Yeah. Uh, absolutely had a clue. And um, and now we get more of the senior team and others in as well to take yeah. part. Um, but it, you, you've got two elements, especially because of healthcare. So we have to have due diligence around the assurance of clinical governance, GDPR, all those sort of things. We have to just yeah. report back to the board because those papers also are for us. And they are also for the CQC and others, yeah. you know. So um, uh, there's that kind of regulatory statutory. Yes, bit. and and so you have to stick to all of that, and you have to have people skilled um, in that to a certain extent on the board, so that they can ask the critical questions, you know, so they can put their mirror up to to what we're saying to them. So you've got that side of things. And then you've got, you know, are we meeting contract delivery, blah, blah, blah. And then you've got the business development side. Yeah. And and so the academy or Accelerate Click and everything has to be passed through the board with their eyes on that, too. And their business view of the financial uh, modelling behind that or whatever it is. And that's really, really helpful. And then I think in my early days of reporting to the board, you know, year one or two, I was so anxious about this. And if anyone suggested something, I thought I had to do it, you know. Um, and and it felt like a personal critique. And quite early on, I realised that this wasn't a personal critique of me as the organisation grew. It was critique. And and they're, they're here to support us. Don't take it personally. But that is, is something that you have to learn. Um, and so when we're bringing new people in, I'm like, don't take it personally. It's not worth it. Don't get upset. They're just, they are here to ask good questions. We need their good questions. And um, if we don't have them, the answers, then that's fine. We look to find them, you know. Yeah. Um, and and also, I have to say, every quarter, whilst it's, you know, that level of detail and everything, can be, we still have to produce it whether it's for people or not, you know, if we're going to be monitoring and managing ourselves. So we still do a lot of that internally. So, our, but fundamentally, every time I do finally get all the board papers together, I'm like, bloody hell, aren't we frigging fantastic? <laughs> so so it's always uplifting. Yeah. Um, weirdly enough, because you forget so many of the things you're doing and then you just go, Oh my goodness! And then the patient feedback's wonderful, and you know, so it's I find it, it, it uplifting. It, it's a sort of reflection that is is energizing, I'm sure. Um, just yes. you mentioned just very briefly, you mentioned Accelerate Click there. Just what's that? That's the dressing optimization scheme. That was what ah. I mentioned earlier. Yeah. Rip. Okay. It's called Accelerate that. Click. So we've started. Getting into this next topic, so leadership and culture is something I, I always like to talk to people about. But what would you say are the non-negotiables for you in 
accelerate? Such a good question. Okay, so what's non-negotiable for me is delivering good patient experience and good patient outcomes. Mm-hmm. So, at the expense order... of at the expense of everything else, that's number one. If you could only achieve one thing, that's it. No, I think it's also good um, workforce experience. Yeah, those two have to go together. Yeah, you can't have one without the other. So you have to deliver both. And the challenge within a small organization, um, less so now as we've got larger, so we've got more capacity, although I'm sure if anyone was listening to me from Accelerate Now, they'd go, what? We have no capacity. But um, but it's, it's sort of in the eye of the beholder, really, isn't it? It's a perspective. But um, we do have more capacity to look at how to develop us as an organization. When there was like 10 to 20, that was a nightmare of a size, to be honest. I mean, I've never read any books about this, but I'm sure there's like, painful sizes of organizations and I would guess it's like 10 to 25 or something um, because you just don't have people are still spinning plates whilst we now have someone that does manage HR rather than me you know because that's what it would have been beginning you know like yeah and I was a nurse specialist I mean what did I know about these things so so I think what's non-negotiable probably comes down to respect So by having respect for the patients and respect for our colleagues, then other things flow out of that, I think. Um, And also the the mission that we're on, you know, there's no point in taking on, I don't know, stoma management Mm. because that's not our core business. Our core mission is very clear. It's about, you know, that wouldn't be me. So um, yeah, I'm not, you know, we don't deliver community health services of this, that and the other. It, yeah. It's very focused on our, our particular specialist passion yeah. um, for changing. You know, that's where our expertise I think, I, I think that's really interesting. And I think for, for people listening, it may, because you are very passionate about this service, and it may, it may seem to people who are, aren't familiar with the service, you know, uh, an odd personal mission to have but actually <laughs> from from talking to to you on a number of occasions um what i'm really getting and this is a bit we, which is transferable we have a, a group of extremely vulnerable people who you believe very strongly are not getting the service yes. that they should get that's the core of it and yes. there are hundreds of examples of similar situations across public services and I, I just think that that ethos and mission that you have in Accelerate is something that can be transferred to a whole range of areas. I mean the thing is it's like every every specialist area I, I imagine that if if people manage people who are homeless better you know like when we had what's it everyone in or whatever yes. you know that would cut costs Right. So it's all about people lifting the lid on how much things cost. And lots of people don't want to know, to be honest. They don't want to know. They think they've got enough problems managing X, Y and Z. 
So, so um, I know that over the years, I and the team have had to try and work out how we articulate this better. And the last few years, instead of focusing, weirdly enough, on patient quality of life, I've shifted to the workforce because the workforce is like everyone's number one worry. Right. And you yeah. go, well, you do know that if people manage things differently, you'd see half the people than you're seeing now and so on and so forth. So then they go, oh, hello, that's interesting. You know, if we just talk about quality of life, people go, ah, yeah, I know. So, um, you know, so yeah. so it's how you frame it. There's a lot of talk now about the health system and health professionals appreciating the wider determinants of health. And I'm sure that is extremely it's, valid. It's massive. For you. And I, I think, um, again, within... Uh, specialisms we don't necessarily bring all that in I was reading I think in the Guardian today Marmot was talking you know Mm. and just about the devastation heading our way and so I'm looking at our population who are already marginalized thinking and what do we do for them about this Mm. you know food bank wise how many how many of our patients visit a food bank I actually don't know that answer and, you know, how many people may not be able to have a hot meal? Yeah. And so this is something that I'm beginning to think about and think, so what do we do about this? Yeah. What's our role in this? In the facilities we have and our service is based in a hospice now in Hackney. Um, and we obviously an independent lease, but they have a lovely cafe there. And I'm thinking, what should we be doing? So I probably can't I say any more fantastic. than that. But, I think it's but, fantastic that you're able to think more broadly than that and you've got the freedom to do it. Yes, but I think, to be honest, um, we are very focused on our specialty, on how we get compression used better, and et cetera, et cetera. But some of those, the wider impact on community or working better <clears throat> with local authority or other voluntary sectors, that hasn't been something we've done brilliantly. And it's something I've been thinking about, you know, that what should we be doing in that space? And some social enterprises are so entrepreneurial, you know, Navigo with their mental health stuff with the gardens and goodness knows what. I mean, how wonderful is that? And so some of the larger social enterprises are able to sort of, <clears throat> excuse me, hive off some, yeah. you know, uh, that social activity. And I think we're getting to the point where we can do a bit more. We have a personalization lead within our organization, looks at patient activation and self-management. That's shaping us differently. We've got a lot to do around that, um, about how we help people through motivational interviewing and so on take control of their circumstances so it's not all about what we do to them but the wider determinants of health have an impact of course they do but it's how we bring that in when we're contracted to do specific tasks because that extra stuff is not funded so that's the other thing so um, and again in a small social enterprise that means more to us Yes. Um, you mentioned Navigo there. So Jane Lewington, the chief exec there, was a, a previous podcast guest. So she talks about the garden centre and everything. It's it's really interesting. Um, just before moving on, I just want to acknowledge really that I do, I, I do feel that how 
pressurized it must be to be trying to do the day-to-day stuff and come up with those new ideas and think really proactively whilst also having in the back of your mind this battle for the survival of the organization in the new world and I just want to acknowledge that because it it is a very real pressure and real real distraction really from just getting on with the job. I think it is. I think the the pressure I would recognise over the last sort of 10 years is that doing this is all consuming, actually. It's all consuming because if you want to do things well for your patients and for your staff, for the membership, then there's an awful lot to think about to try and do. And I know that... um, you know, uh, oh, I, it's amazing the things that um, have sort of put pressure on me, really. I remember in the pandemic, you, you'd see on Twitter that various organisations sent everyone a little box of thank you with hand cream in or something like that, you know. And yeah. and people have known those things put pressure on me because you just think, oh, well, that's a nice thing. Oh, gosh, I'm not looking after people enough. The fact that we bought PPE earlier than any other organisation, a community organisation, um, meant that we kept our staff safe, actually. And and yeah. we spent a lot of time looking after people and making sure, a bit like the, you know, if you're in an airplane, they say, if you've got a child, put on your whatever first yes, um, yeah. before you help the your, child. Your oxygen mask. Yes, yeah. exactly. Do that first. And that's what we, that was our sort of principle in, in um, Accelerate at the start of the pandemic was, we, I need to sort. I need to protect our staff as yes. much as we can if we're going to keep this service going. If we're yeah. going to provide a service for patients, then I have to have the staff to deliver it. So you've already started talking about this, but what sort of leader are you? Well, how do you approach leadership? Because you're right, it is all consuming, but it can be all consuming, but you mustn't let it consume you completely. Oh. I don't think I've done that very well. Um, <laughs> I think, yeah, just ask my family. Um, I actually don't know. I don't know if I've got the answer for that, really. I mean, you know, there's so many articulate people around what leadership is. I mean, do uh, you delegate? Do you delegate to that really good senior team you've yes. got? Do you ha- yeah. Yeah, no, definitely. And again, as you get bigger, you can delegate. (laughs) When we started, there was no there was no one to delegate to. Uh, People would go, should you be doing that as a chief exec? I was like, oh, that's interesting. Who else should be doing it? Um, Because, you know, it's like, um, please send this to your finance manager. Oh, hello. Um, so um, <laughs> that's you as well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Who's your commercial director? Um, so um, I just think humans are an interesting lot, really. And and for me, leadership still f- comes back to the mission and mm-hmm. how you deliver it and how you you galvanize people to um, to want to reach that mission too. You can't force them, force to water and all that malarkey, but um, you can inspire people to to join you on that journey. And I always think uh, we've obviously had a lot of people through Accelerate over the years, and I always feel like they were part of that journey. I feel sorry for anyone that joined us, to be honest. Between 2015 to 
to 17. I think that was a particularly difficult time, only because you're in such churn as you grow. Everything was changing, you know. I definitely would um, do things differently or advise people differently, uh, having had my experience. But I think leadership is is really, I don't know, it's something it's just about being human, really. Yeah. I, I don't know. I, I no, just, it's yeah. great. And I, I have to say, uh, Alison, I, I ask this question of a lot of people. And I think the people who struggle to answer or don't have a prepared answer or tend to be the more authentic leaders because they <laughs> just do. They they yeah. haven't. They're not following a rule book or something they've read in one of the many leadership books they're just being themselves leading the team the best way that that they know how and it's not about the badge of leadership it's just about getting the best out of your team so i i think actually i i enjoyed that answer a lot i think it it was very (laughs) very authentic so i think the thing is um, we all have our roles right so you know on a bad day I just have to dig in and go well I I can't just um, absolve myself of my responsibility today the same as a clinician when they're having a bad day their role is there to give advice clinical care and so on that's the bottom line is what is your role today and your role is also to be kind and and lovely to your human beings that you're working alongside your colleagues as well as your patients and that's fundamentally it but it's also about seeking support i have spent hours reading or um talking to others batting ideas around uh, reflecting writing my own journals to try and work out my what my problem is today um and and finding a solution going for a walk and thinking oh i know what i need to do i need to talk to so and so great okay i'll do that so it is all consuming actually yeah. because this isn't for me just a job unfortunately it is a mission and um so i'm not just a ceo of a of a company that will be here and gone it, it's fundamentally yeah. my my purpose, and that's not just for me. I know other people in our organisation that go, "This is this is what I'm on earth to do." Yes, no, that that's fantastic. So, as a as a final question, then I ask this of everybody: What bit of advice would you give to someone working in the public sector or in a charity or social enterprise who? wants to make an impact in the way that you have. Now, I know you'll be very modest about whether you've made an impact or not, but I'm I'm making my own judgment that you absolutely have. So taking that as given, what advice would you would you give? I think really, really be clear about what the problem is you're trying to solve. You know, what's the mission that you're on? That's fun. Absolutely. Everything needs to pivot on that. Um, and then it's like, how do you demonstrate it? What are your key outcomes that you're looking for? Mm. You know, it can be anything. For us, it's healing rates and reduction in infection in uh, for lymphedema, reduction in admissions. Those are the critical things, as well as reduced costs to the health economy through dressing usage. So those things are what I am constantly refining finding out more ways of demonstrating that really the rest can be very woolly i think that's fascinating though because i would say there are an endless number of people running around trying to do good stuff and 
that what you've just described there is having a very clear focus and then measuring your impact. So knowing what the problem is in, in a great deal of detail, having the numbers to back that up and then measuring it and being able to demonstrate that you are making an impact. And that, I think, is something that a lot of organizations don't have. Well, sometimes um, we're encouraged through our commissioning as well to not have that focus, to have an activity focus. <laughs> Just say, how yeah. many people have you seen? Oh, it doesn't really mean anything because you're looking it's at a block number <clears throat> and it doesn't talk. It doesn't actually, unless we break it down, it doesn't tell you that referrals have gone through the roof since COVID or whatever. So activity based contracts are the bane of my life, to be honest, yeah. um, because. You know, an assessment takes twice as long as a review, but it's not in the the mix. My advice is to be very specific um, about what you're commissioned to deliver and that what you're commissioned to deliver means something, (laughs) which it doesn't always in our contracts. That's our challenge at the moment is making them more fit for purpose, to be honest. But what we do is we collect stuff even though we're not being asked for it. Yes. And and I've always done that before we became Accelerate. Yeah. And and I think putting yourself out, doing that extra work just because you need to have the data um, to prove your worth, even if no one else is asking for it, has always yeah. been part of something I, I thought was important. Indeed, anyway. indeed. Um, Alison, I could talk to you all day, but we will have <laughs> to draw to a close. A huge thank you for your time. Well, thank you very much, Andrew. It's always insightful when we try and articulate what we may or may not believe. (laughs) Well, I think we got a fantastic insight there into what goes on in the head of a really great leader. The section towards the end where Alison discusses the balance between being vulnerable but also projecting confidence, I think is a battle we all have in our heads when we're trying to be authentic, um, but yet also project what's expected of us as a leader and a manager. So I find that really useful and I could I could recognize a lot of that in myself and indeed in other people that I meet and work with. And I think the key lesson to take from that is that you must be both, you must be both vulnerable and confident, but depending on the environment who you're engaging with, You can tilt the balance either way. So that's definitely something for all of us who are trying to be leaders to have it in our heads. Alison has a very strong focus on the well-being and health of her workforce. And that makes a lot of sense in an organization where the service is essentially a person to person service. You look after your workforce, then they will look after your service users. So it makes a lot of sense in terms of the overall mission to help those vulnerable people who require accelerate services but it's very clear that it's important to Alison that this is a great place for people to work where they can thrive and they can be happy and finally I want to come back to what we talked about at the beginning of the conversation which is the idea of prevention within health and care services this is a fantastic case study which I think a lot of other organizations and services can learn from. So it is a very specialist service, but the way Alison describes how they engage with service users and how they provide that upfront treatment to try and stop a wound getting worse 
and persevering that that actually ends up reducing the cost to the overall system as well as creating a much better outcome for the person receiving the treatment. So this can be replicated across the system, I think, and is very instructive. So that's all for this episode. And thank you very much for listening. And don't forget to follow us on LinkedIn, on Twitter, or register on the website so you never miss a future episode. Thank you.